Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family, and thank you for joining us again as we continue our family Bible studies in the Gospel of Matthew. We have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we're not doing a comprehensive study in the Gospel of Matthew, but I've been trying to select for you some nuggets to get a firsthand experience with the Gospel of Matthew. And there's so many nuggets in the Gospel of Matthew. I was really kind of wrestling with how do you pick, and I've decided to emphasize some of the passages within the Gospel of Matthew that were life-changing for me, and I felt that that might be a way that I can convey the power of this Gospel to you, because where we are now in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7 changed my life, and we're going to devote at least a couple of episodes to Matthew chapter 7, and what I would like to do today is part of a preparation for even hearing Matthew chapter 7, particularly the last part of the chapter. But the Sermon on the Mount is so important, and yet I think this is just something, oh, well, you know, what, what did we hear in Mass today? It was a gospel reading out of Matthew 5, 6, or 7 Sermon on the Mount. It was, it was really nice, really good. But, you know, to understand what's going on in these three chapters, you really need to turn to the last verse in the Sermon on the Mount. And if your reaction was a reaction of those who heard Jesus teaching this, then you have it. Otherwise, you want to dig a little deeper until you have this type of reaction. But here it is, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. This was the last verse in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And that word astonished can be translated utterly amazed. Uh, one Bible Greek resource said it's to be so amazed as to be practically overwhelmed, not just like, wow, like really wow. Um, another Greek resource says to be greatly astounded, and at its root, it can mean to drive out of one's senses uh, by a sudden shock. This was powerful, shocking, astounding, and amazing teaching. It wasn't just a little something nice to hear. So what I would like to do today as preparation for the Sermon on the Mount, because I, the passages that are coming up for us in Matthew 7 are so powerful that they need to be used properly. And there's two things you need to do if you really want to be a balanced Christian. First, you have to realize that it's extremely dangerous if there are missing parts to your Christian life. By that, I mean some of these challenging passages, which we're going to be looking at in future episodes from Matthew 7, and places like the Beatitudes, 
it's very easy for scripture scholars, for teachers, homilists, preachers to kind of skip over it or like, Jesus really didn't quite mean what he said. No, I'm afraid he meant exactly what he said. So we don't want to have anything missing from our understanding of what Christianity is all about, okay? But it's also dangerous if we present something like Matthew 7, like this is all there is, and don't use Matthew 7 in a way that's balanced. So we don't want a missing Christianity, and we don't want an unbalanced Christianity. We want a Christianity that can incorporate things like the Sermon on the Mount, but yet see it in a balanced way with the rest of Scripture. Let me give you an illustration. And I've said this before under a different topic in faith and family, but it was an interesting night for me. Here in Greenville, I was interested in becoming a shepherd of a small flock of sheep, and I noticed there was an announcement that a Clemson University veterinarian was going to be talking to farmers and ranchers on uh, minerals, of all things. I thought, well, that sounds curious. So I drove over there, and this wasn't like uh, the people attending weren't people like shop at Whole Foods. Every single person there except me arrived in a pickup truck. I now have a pickup truck, and it's 14 years old, which means I'm part of the fraternity. But back then, I pulled up my Subaru. And I knew, well, you know, these were serious farmers and ranchers. And the veterinarian talked about how he gets frantic calls from a rancher here in South Carolina that a newborn calf couldn't even stand up. And they thought they had some plague uh, invading their herd of cattle. And he said really what was causing that calf to lack the ability to even stand up was a deficiency in minerals. And he would come out to the farm or ranch and have a a shot of liquid minerals, and within 25 minutes, that calf was on its feet. And he went on to explain that things like selenium, which is deficient in many, many parts of the United States, is one of those things so necessary. And I later found out it's life or death for a newborn lamb. Uh, to have this trace mineral, which means it's just a little bit of it, you need it for health. And in Finland, it's against the law for a farmer to put down fertilizer now without selenium in it. And why is that? Well, it seems that some countries that have high levels of selenium still in the soil have low rates of cancer. It's probably a coincidence, but I, I take trace minerals of selenium and feed it to my sheep as well. But the point being, if minerals are missing, you get a highly deficient or even defective Christianity, and one that perhaps is even toxic because you're not even able to, metaphorically speaking, stand up in your own two feet as a Christian. So we want to remember not to leave things out that don't please our palate or our itching ears. We take the full dose of the teaching of Scripture. Now, there's a second problem with minerals, while we're on the mineral thing, because I'm trying to give you an illustration, so this will this will just lock in. This isn't a once-and-done episode. I'm hoping this just stays with you. Okay, in minerals, once you start learning that minerals are essential for life, and minerals could be 
for humans even, uh, go a long way to helping with things, serious things like heart attacks and cancer prevention. Well, if you start taking minerals, you you soon find out that there's a certain balancing that needs to take place with minerals. Like if you just take a whole lot of magnesium, which is really essential and is also deficient in our soils, you need to balance magnesium with potassium. And there's like, oh, I don't know, probably two dozen or more balancing acts between all of these minerals. And you could just scratch your head, but you know, it's real nice to know that the sea and sea minerals, in other words, minerals derived from things like kelp, have all 90 minerals given by God in perfect balance. So much so in World War I when the injured soldiers had lost so much blood and they didn't have plasma or blood available, guess what they gave them? Seawater, and they lived, okay? So the point being, don't leave anything out. You don't want things missing from your understanding of Scripture, but also when you have those hard passages like the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Matthew 5, and 6, you, you want to balance those teachings with the rest of Scripture, okay? You don't want to leave anything out, and this is so critical today because the pressure, the cultural pressure is really on young people, and they're going to feel the cultural collapse in a more intense fashion than older adults. So you wanna get this right if you're a parent, okay? So we wanna balance. Now, what I'm gonna be talking about the rest of today is how do you balance Matthew chapter seven. And so to introduce this concept of balance, I'm gonna make a preposterous statement. But before I make it, uh, I need to give you a 30 second personal biography. I was an evangelical for two decades, including youth pastor, pastor, and Bible college instructor, okay? And I was now a Catholic for three decades. So I've been both, all right? Now, with that, I can make my two claims. First, it is my claim that the majority of evangelicals, not all, but the majority of evangelicals are off balance in their understanding of the gospel. Pretty big. Catholics are cheering, go, okay, give it to them, Steve. My second claim is that the majority of Catholics, not all, are also off balance in their understanding of the gospel. Okay? I love evangelicals. I consider myself an evangelical Catholic, by the way, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to help both sides here in a real sincere way. But let's start with the evangelicals. They desperately need the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if I was to ask an evangelical, where's where's the best place I can learn what the gospel's all about? And they don't even blink, at least if they know their evangelical view of Scripture, they would say, it's Romans. It's the epistle of Romans. That's where you find the the strongest and the clearest explanation of the gospel. Just by personal example, I graduated from an evangelical college. They taught me Greek pretty well. I spent my whole summer 
After graduating with a religion degree from Assembly of God College, I spent my whole summer working on the Greek text of the Epistle of Romans because I knew that was the gospel. And it doesn't mean that the gospel is not in Romans, okay? Because Romans 1 says this, first verse, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets, the gospel concerning his son. So Romans is all about the gospel. I'm not saying it isn't, but what evangelicals, I'm saying, are off balance because like me, I was spending a whole lot of time in Romans and maybe not quite as much time in other parts of the Bible. Uh, there's an evangelical scholar that really tried to um, uh, just uh, get some people to wake up. He published a book with a very provocative title entitled, Did Jesus Preach the Gospel? Because the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, contain the teachings of Jesus, and yet many evangelicals will say, well, if you want to learn about the gospel, you go to Romans. And, you know, you want to learn about Jesus, whatever, but did Jesus preach the gospel? Do the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, teach the gospel? And it sounds ridiculous to Catholic ears, but this is a very profound question for the evangelicals to answer. In the Schofield Reference Bible, which was the original Rapture at Any Moment Study Bible, it was uh, first introduced early 20th century, it says this, on the page, uh, it's like a study Bible, and the comments on the bottom of a page for Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, says this, quote, the Sermon on the Mount, in its primary application, gives neither the privilege nor the duty of the church. These are found in the epistles. Yikes! <laughs> I mean, I had fully digested uh, the Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, when I moved to California after I got out of the Navy to join the Jesus movement, I was going to a church that taught the rapture quite a bit, and so I purchased a leather-bound, nicest Schofield Reference Bible I could. And I don't know how much I paid attention to this, but the primary application of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you don't have to worry about, Christian, kind of blow it off. See, this is the unbalanced approach to the Bible. And when you're unbalanced, just like when you're unbalanced in, in minerals, it's not a minor thing. All kinds of disruptions can occur in your body. Now, currently our medical profession doesn't widely recognize this, but veterinarians at least do with animals, learn from animals what can happen if you have the minerals or what can happen if you don't. What happens when you have the Sermon on the Mount and when you don't? Okay. And by the way, that quote from the Schofield Reference Bible was on the page, same page as Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where Jesus says, don't think that I've come to release you from the law and the prophets. Anyone who releases one of the least of these commands will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is a divine warning 
from God the Son about not monkeying with the Sermon on the Mount and the Schofield Reference Bible does it explicitly, okay? Now, and be aware, there are many, many, many Protestants, and there are many evangelicals who don't buy into the rapture-at-any-moment view of the Schofield Reference Bible. I just picked an example of the worst, okay? But even if you don't blow it off like the Schofield Bible does, there are many evangelicals who just think the Gospels in Romans and good, solid teachings in the Gospels, but it's not the gospel in the gospels. All right. And I'm overstating this a bit, I'll confess, but I'm trying to get the point across because we all have weaknesses. Evangelicals and Catholics have weaknesses. Now let's talk about Catholics. Now I've been a Catholic for 30 years, and I believe that the majority of Catholics, again, not all Catholics by any means, but the majority of Catholics are just as unbalanced as the evangelicals. Okay? but they have the opposite problem of the evangelicals. Serious Catholics, and those are those listening to Catholic radio. I mean, if you're not a serious Catholic, I mean, I hope even people are just inquiring are listening to Catholic radio, but, you know, Catholic homeschoolers, those who take their mass obligation very seriously, love their Catholic faith, take their Catholicism seriously, they know all about the stiff teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. But they become dangerously, and I mean dangerously, off balance when they forget the primacy of the grace of God. Okay, I wrote a book entitled Grace and Justification. Uh, I don't write books because I, I like writing books. To me, that's very slow painful process, but there's certain things that I feel are very important. And on pages 12 and 13 of my little book, Grace and Justification, I talk about what then Cardinal Ratzinger and then Archbishop Schornborn said about the whole arrangement of the catechism of the Catholic faith and why they did what they did. And my summary, I try to explain it very simply, um, I quote what they said and then explain it. It may be more important for Christian parenting than five of the other best psychological parenting books. If you miss this, you're missing Christianity. I'll make that claim just as loud as possible. And why? Well, they ask the question, or I'll ask you the question, mom and dad listening to this, what is the reason for the ordering of the four principal parts of the catechism? The catechism is, your basic outline is four huge sections of the catechism. Why are they in that particular order that they're given? Why, for instance, is the teaching of the Ten Commandments towards the back portion of the catechism rather than the very front? And this is the answer from the editors of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It was to give a, quote, strong emphasis to the primacy of grace. The first two-thirds of the Catechism, basically two-thirds, talk about who God is and what he has done for us. The last third 
is what our response in obedience is to be to God, knowing who he is, and what he has done for us. And this is their summary of the whole arrangement of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It's this, God is first, grace is first. This is the true hierarchy of truth. And then Archbishop Schornborn, the editor, said this, when we even get to our response to what God has done, says, when describing the Ten Commandments and putting in context of our family Bible study in the Gospel of Matthew, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, when describing the Ten Commandments, here too there must be no doubt about the primacy of grace. Only when he recognizes the supernatural power that flows from being in Christ can the faithful disciple practice the Christian life in faithfulness to the Decalogue. Okay, that was nicely said. I'm going to say it blunt. Without a primary and continual emphasis on the grace of God, trying to live the Beatitudes or Matthew chapter 7 is doomed to failure. And you can be instructing morality to the crows come home to your children, and if it's not prefaced and given a hierarchy of truth where grace and God's grace is primary, you have got it upside down and out of balance. I, I was giving a talk. In fact, it was a talk very similar to my book, Grace and Justification, to a Catholic parish not too far from where I'm speaking right now. And uh, one of the uh, laity in the uh, audience said, okay, Steve, I want to summarize it. Catholics, we have works. Protestants, they have grace. And that's a kind of a common delusion. That is a statement completely, utterly ignorant of Catholicism. No, Catholics don't have works and Protestants have grace. Catholics have grace, top, primary, first, overriding, necessary. And even when we talk about Catholic works, we can't discuss about Catholic works or our obedience to the Lordship of Christ, as outlined in Matthew 7, without an emphasis and a reminder of grace. And uh, the easiest way, in fact, I've had priests tell me, that's a, this is a good way to remember it. Whenever you're talking about one of these hard truths, like Matthew 7, I haven't even gotten to them yet. That's next episode. I need to preface it, okay? And I'm prefacing it with grace. And so when you have a hard truth, you have a grace burger. The top bun, before you start telling folks what's required of Christians living under the Lordship of Christ, you start with grace. Then the meat, the burger, okay, you know, you don't cut it up. You don't, uh, you know, uh, only give half of it. No, you give the full dose. But, you know, in the course of a single homily, the course of a single lesson, the course of a single broadcast, if you start talking about what people need to do, they'll forget about grace by the time you're done. So on that grace burger, you have the bottom bun and you remind them of grace again, because that's the key. The love and grace and mercy of God is the greatest motivator, 
the greatest thing that will empower people to live the Christian life. Living the Christian life, the key is Christ, not me. And so you have to get all that into perspective. Bringing it back home, and I'm, you know, maybe evangelicals and Catholics aren't so far apart on this or shouldn't be so far apart on this. Because, you know, the Epistle of Romans, and I, I love Romans. I've spent a lot of time in Romans. And, you know, outside of the Catholic faith, there is this one little phrase in Romans that caught my attention, but I didn't quite, it didn't quite, quite fit the puzzle. And it's in the very first chapter of Romans, Romans 1.5, St. Paul describes this phrase, the obedience of faith amongst all the nations is the goal of preaching the gospel, the obedience of faith. And then you get to Romans 16, the last chapter of the epistle, towards the very end, verse 26, and what does he say again? To bring about the obedience of faith. And that word obedience the Greek word behind it is a compound Greek word, akuo, like you hear acoustics, is to hear, but it has a preposition in front of that word to hear. So the idea of obedience isn't just hearing, you know, in one ear, out the other, but it's hearing and responding. That's obedience, biblically, hearing and responding. And the obedience of faith is the bookends of the gospel as presented in the epistle of Romans. Now let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 7, starting verse 24, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rains and floods and winds blowing and everything, and it didn't fall. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It wasn't hoop akuo, which is the word for obedience in Romans 1 and Romans 16. No, it's just hearing. Hearing without doing. Hearing without obeying. Hearing without responding. And thinking that's the gospel, just hearing. No, it isn't. Just hearing is utter delusion that will end you up in hell. I'm required to warn you of that. Jesus says it's like building your house on the sand and there's gonna be pressure against it and it'll be a great collapse. So it's either hearing and doing or hearing and doing nothing. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 435 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.